I think that most of us in this room would say, yeah, that video is correct. I really like that video. That video says what I feel, what I think. Yet, yet, so often we tend to live like we'd never seen that. We tend to live like if I perform, then people will like me. And the, and the deal is, if we perform, then people do like us. And the hamster wheel goes around and around and around and around the hamster wheel until somebody dares to step off the hamster wheel and say, says, I'm okay. With or without your approval, I'm okay. With or without your affirmation, I'm okay. Now, the problem comes to our parents. Or in this case, the problem comes to us as parents. If we've inadvertently taught our children that their worth, their value, their performance is based on when they're good boys and girls, then they will at some point have to step off our hamster wheel to become okay. If my father loves me only when, only when I worked hard, then he gives me attention, um, then I'm going to believe that God's love is only when I work hard and do good things. If I get love from my mother when I'm a nice boy, then I'll conclude that God loves us when I'm nice. The problem is not that we shouldn't be nice or that we shouldn't be work hard, because of course we should do those things. The problem is when we make those our core values, when we make our, our core values about how other people perceive us, then we become very fragile people. Say it again. When we make our core value about how we know ourselves based on how other people perceive us, we become extremely fragile people. Because at that point, my core value, my worth, depends on how Susie sees me. And then, I don't like that because sometimes she sees me as a really good guy. Sometimes she sees me as a disappointment. Sometimes she sees me as a hero. Other times she sees me as lazy. Other times, who knows how she sees me. And if I base who I am and my value on how she sees me, I'm going to be running around trying to answer her questions, all my, and I'll never be who God wants me to be. Did you catch that? That brought it together. Now, what that, this video does not mean is parents forget about you, school forget about you, society forget about you, I'm going to be me. That's the farthest thing from the truth, and that's just another version of, for example, I met a young man once who was uh, in his middle 20s, and he cussed. Oh, he swore like crazy. And he linked them together this way, and he'd make up other ones this way, and he had his own special ones this way. And every sentence was laced somehow with an adjective to describe something. This particular fellow's parents were absolutely against swearing, absolutely against it, disciplined him very hard if he ever used a bad word. Now, mind you, they could use a bad word probably, but he couldn't. We don't talk like this in this house. And so he felt like he was being independent. 
He was being his own man. When in truth, his mom and dad had him on a puppet on a string, right? All he was doing was rebelling against his parents. Wasn't being who God wanted him to be. He was just countering his parents. Do you see how his parents still controlled him? If his parents said, don't cuss, he said, oh, look at there. They just told me not to cuss. He couldn't help but go cuss because his parents told him not to. Are you tracking with me yet? Parents were still in charge of that young man, although he thought he was being independent. We have to get our self-worth independent from humans. Otherwise, we're very fragile people who get jerked around by all the people who come into our life. Sometimes the healthy ones of us say, I don't want to get jerked around anymore. So we establish sort of an anti-jerk-around policy, which means we're still getting jerked around, by, right? If mom and dad say, never go down that street. I don't know why you go down that street. First time you have the car, you go down that street, right? Your parents ran your life at that moment. Because you were just simply rebelling against your parents. They were in charge. Had they never said, don't go down that street, that street would have had no power. But you were just like a robot, and you went down that street. We have to find our self-worth outside of our mom and dad, outside of our friends, and outside of society. Now, we only find it from Jesus. That's the only place to find it. Do we have to conform to society? Yeah. Do we have to turn in our homework? Yes, we do. Do we have to uh, do the best we can at our jobs or we don't get paid? Yes, we do. But those things have nothing to do with our self-worth. Because if they do, when, if that car wreck happens to you and your life is based on performance, your soul crashes because you can't perform. And the gospel says... I'm going to make you so secure that your soul will never crash. You do your best in school, but if because of parental divorce, if because of sickness, if because you got depressed, if because of hard things in life took you away from class for a week, you come back to class, you got an F in that class, your soul is still okay. But if your soul is only okay when you get A's, you're a very fragile person. If your soul is only okay when you run a 10-4, 100-meter dash, then you're a fragile person because life, the world, people can mess with you. I don't want to be that way. I want to work hard for good for work's sake. I want to sprint hard for sprinting's sake. I, I want to uh, have a clean house because it's the right thing to do for my guests, not because my worth depends on it. I want to love my mom and dad, but when they get sick, my soul has to be intact. I can hurt and still be okay. I can ache, but I'm still okay. I can suffer extreme loss, but I'm still okay because Jesus makes me okay. Period. If we get our okayness from any other source but Jesus... We're very fragile people. So let's come to Romans chapter 12. I want to give you two visual images, if you will, 
Now, I'm hoping that, that you're reading Romans chapter 12 and letting that soak in. If you read it even once a week, you will have the, you will have the chapter memorized. But we start out, in view of God's mercies, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, in view of God's mercies. And this first image I want to give you is that's going to be the center of our ever-expanding hoop, in view of God's mercies. Then it goes on, the text goes on, to talk about us. Second realm. This is God and who he is and how he sees us. He sees us with mercies. In view of that as the core of our being, let's go out now, let's talk about ourselves. Make yourselves a living sacrifice. Then you'll know what God's will is and you'll know how to worship. Don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but think of yourselves with sober judgment. Verse 5 and 6. Now, we're thinking of yourself still, God's mercies, those are in view, but now we're beginning to understand ourselves. So we have sober judgment, we're living sacrifice, we're worshiping, those things are God's will, and we have gifts, and those are listed in the text. We have some spiritual gifts, some gift of giving, some the gift of serving, some the gifts of prophecy, some the gifts of teaching, and so on. So we're learning about ourselves. And then we come to this apex where we bump out into another realm that says, God's mercy, now we learn about ourselves. Boom, here's how we relate to others. Love must be sincere. Four words. Then we come to our text today, which we really won't make it to because I'm saving it up for next week. So, Clay, this will be another torturous week for you as we snail our way through, through uh, this text. And then we come in verse 14 to... to to, I'm sorry, in verse 9, to other believers, and love must be sincere. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves, which is where we're at today. Then we move out to Romans chapter 13. Here's how we relate to the government. It's going to talk about submitting to authorities, and I think you'll find it really interesting how I see that passage. So we've got these circles that keep enlarging and, and getting f- f- bigger as we go out to our realms of, of um, influence. One more image. Can you imagine with me, and if your pastor were really prepared, and if we had PowerPoint here, and if you weren't part-time, we would have had some really cool slides, but we don't. So, But we really had a nice gathering last night but we don't. I want you to imagine, if you will, a, a hourglass. Okay. I want to start at the bottom of the hourglass, and I want to put these things. So this is a different way to view those circles. So at the bottom of this hourglass, if you will, is the very basic foundation of this passage, what God is saying, or what Paul is saying here in this book uh, to the Roman church, Christians, the Jewish Christians in Rome, in view of God's mercies. That's the platform that we stand on, on the bottom of this hourglass, and that's got to be solid. Then we come up. Here's how we worship, living sacrifice, and we've just gone all through these things. And we come up with these things, and then we begin to talk about who we are. Well, in view of God's mercies, now we've got our gifts and everything else. In the middle of this hourglass, there's a placard that hangs there, and it says, uh, love must be sincere. So we know who we are now. We know how God sees us now. We know we're not performing because that's what Romans chapter 1 through 11 was about, helping these Jewish believers in Rome 
learn how to get away from that sacrifice system and not perform because they've been justified by faith, right? So we come to Romans chapter 12. Take that hourglass now and flip it over. The sand starts to dribble out, right? Because love must be sincere, we flip it over, and now who we are is going to determine through the lens of love must be sincere, what we do. Today's text, honor one another above yourselves. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. So this is all under the category of love must be sincere. It's extremely practical, extremely logical. Catch this sentence that I'm about to tell you. First, we have to know who we are. Then we talk about what we do. If you don't know who you are, you don't know what you're doing. You're just being compulsive, going from appetite to appetite, knee-jerking from here, avoiding pain there, running over here, trying to be a hero, whatever it is. If we don't know who we are, we don't know what we're doing. Another sentence, and let this burn into your brain, right out of this passage here of Romans chapter 12. Who we are determines what we do. Who we are determines what we do. Some people say, I'm not really myself today, I've got a headache. At which point I say inside myself, no, I think this really is who you are. The headache has just removed all the buffers. You can hide behind the headache to say what you wouldn't have said before. You with me? It's not a good day today. I'm, I, I'm really sorry I said that. I wasn't myself. No, nah, I think you probably really were yourself. Just the guard came down for a little while. Who we are determines what we do. If you are kind-hearted, you will do kind-hearted things. If you're kind-hearted at, the, at your core. If you're pretending to be kind-hearted, then a headache will knock you off your game. And you won't be kind-hearted. Because who we are always shows up in what we do. Being precedes doing. Being precedes doing. Being precedes doing. In view of God's mercies, God loves us. That's who we are. Make yourself a living sacrifice. Make yourself then able to worship on that living sacrifice. And we've taught about this. Then you'll be able to test and approve what is God's will, his good and perfect will. Learn who you are. View yourself with sober judgment. Not positive self-image, not negative self-image, not inflated self-image, underinflated self. View yourself, what did I say? Accurately. Tell ourselves the truth about ourselves. Be honest. So much of Christian teaching, and it happens around the United States on these Sunday mornings like this, is telling us to be something besides ourselves. It tells us that our faith is about giving more so God will be happy with us. It tells us that our faith is about serving more so that God will be happy with us. And Paul's message is, know who you are in view of God's mercies. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Am I still in Romans chapter 12 on the text? Yes, of course, all of this. And when we know who we are, and we see it clearly, and we know our gifts, 
Then we come to this passage, love must be sincere, which basically means don't use that knowledge of yourself. Don't use the mercy. Don't use your grace. Don't use your justification. Don't use your gifts to hurt people. Don't use your ability to speak in the title that you've been given as pastor to hurt people, to puff yourself up. Know, pastor, your own tendencies. Know yourself. If there's something about yourself, pastor, that needs work, then work on it. Don't get here and pretend and then tell the congregation to be authentic. Know yourself. Tell the truth about yourself. Love must be sincere. We take that base, we flip it over, and it runs through the love must be sincere, and it goes out to other people. And we start with honor others, be devoted to others. Page three, in case you're wondering. A few words on love. Love is a very confusing thing, not when we write about it. It's not confusing. It's not confusing when we see it in movies. Although for those of us who are astute enough to really feel like we understand love, we watch a movie and we go, that's not love. It's a lot of stuff, but it's not love. I have to tell you, and I've said it before, that most people, when they get married, think they're in love and they say, I love you, but they're not in love yet. Because love is honed and worked and crushed and built over the years doesn't happen when we go and dangle our feet in the pool on the honeymoon. We'd like to think it does because that's easy. Love has to be built. The word nostalgia, for example, does not have to do with thinking back on the good old days like we might think it does. A study came out of Sweden a number of years ago. It asked World War II vets who would, World War II, uh, after World War II, yeah, the veterans who had got home, it asked them what they longed for when they were during the war. And they said, the, the bells of the cattle in the mountains. And the psychologist called that a some kind of psychosis. They're not present. They're in, they're in battle, and they longed to hear the peaceful sound of the cattle in the hills. And then the, the psychologist started thinking about this and said, maybe it's not a disorder after all. Nostalgia in the early psychological lingo was called disorder until we realized, because it, was, it seemingly made us weak, Right? to reminisce and be nostalgic. Nostalgic, we become nostalgic about things that involve hard work, struggle, a battle. I used to take delinquent kids and others for 
wilderness programs, and it was hard. We'd have rain, we'd have wind, we'd be at high altitude, and we didn't go back to the car. We stayed out there. We built shelters. The wind blew our shelters over. We let the students build shelters, and then we'd sleep in them, and certainly those would get blown. We'd let the students build fires, and they'd burn the dinner, or they wouldn't get the fire going. And so we did that sort of thing to help these students learn how to take care of themselves, not in a wilderness survival, but just that actions have consequences and responsibility is something important and you can whine about not building a fire and that it's too cold and that your hands are cold and that you can't figure it out and you didn't you can whine about that all you want but tonight's dinner is going to be cold <laughs> pretty simple nostalgia is when those students look back on that week 10 years later and go that was the best week of my life but i remember that student being depressed, bummed out, first words out of their sleeping bag in the morning were, I hate this crap, we got to get out of here, this is stupid. Ten years later, they're in my office, now they've got a job, they're adults going, that was the greatest trip of my life, I love that, remember the time? They're nostalgic about the time when they worked together as a team, and there was a struggle, and they got to build something together as a team, and they made it, and those were the good old days. Isn't that interesting? Love is built the same way. Love is built over time when we build memories of struggling together, when we build memories and we build nostalgic categories where we work together to make something happen. I'm going to give you a definition. I stole this years ago from Allender Crab Hudson and uh, some other fellows out of Colorado. Love in just three simple words is this, another's highest good. Another's highest good. Give you an example of, of uh, what love is not. I pull into the uh, auto body shop or the auto shop and I say, my brakes are squeaking. And uh, it's about $850 to get a whole new brake job for the rig. And he says, well, it's really expensive. It's $850. And he looks and my pads are worn. The rotor's warped. There's metal on metal. And he says, but wow, that's a lot of money for you. And I go, yeah, that's a lot of money. And he lets me drive off because he doesn't want to do the hard thing, saying, you need to get these wheels fixed. You're driving around with those kids in your car, and these brakes need to be fixed. Oh, let's take another example. Let's go to the dentist. And the dentist says, I'd love to fix that sore tooth. I know it really hurts. That must be a real struggle for you, I know. But to fix it, I'm going to have to give you this shot. And that shot's really going to hurt. Your toes are going to curl, and you may cry and say, please don't do that. And do your toes curl? My toe. And, and you may say, please don't give me any more shots. But the shot is necessary to avoid worse pain. But the dentist says, I don't want to cause you pain, so you just go on with that tooth. It'll, it'll be all right. I, I know it hurts. That's not love. Love is doing something for another's highest good, which means sometimes we have to say, you have a form of cancer. And that may not seem very kind to say, but it's love. Because it's true, right? And to get this cancer out, we need to do surgeries that will be painful 
expensive, and difficult and leave you with scars. It will be very hard, but we can get this fixed. A loving doctor says that. Am I right? A kind doctor says that. A doctor who cares for our highest good says that. Now, a word on this, and I've said it before. Honesty and love are two different things, right? Do you remember me talking about this? Honesty is the, uh, that person in line when you're in a hurry at Walmart. I've learned to say the Walmart since I've come to Oklahoma. At the Walmart. And you're in a hurry, and they're digging through their change purse for those two pennies. And I just want to be honest here. I get I'll pay for the two pennies. I got it. Just being honest. Sometimes people who claim to be brutally honest say those things to puff themselves up and you'll hear me say this again because it helps us remember it but sometimes those folks enjoy the brutality more than the honesty honesty can be very damaging and honestly honesty is rarely right if you want to be honest be honest with yourself let's go back to the sober judgment view yourself with sober judgment that's the time to be honest That's the time to be really honest with yourself. That's when we're looking in the mirror. Remember, we've done this before. We've looked in the mirror. We've, in view of God's mercies, we're looking at ourselves. Now, uh, love must be sincere. We look outside. What do we do with all of this? Now that we know ourselves and see ourselves, what do we do with all of this? Love is, has to do with helping another for their highest goods. A few words on Paul by way of review again. And I don't know how well you know the Apostle Paul, but you've heard me say that we can only understand these letters, and Romans is a letter. It's actually a doctoral thesis. He could have got a degree out of that. Um, But Romans is a letter, and we can only understand Romans if we understand who the Romans were, and who Paul was. Each letter in the Bible needs to be understood from who's the guy who wrote it and who was he writing to. It really can't be understood any other way any more than if you were to try to interpret a letter that you just found that said, Dear Susie, love Mark. If you found that letter and said, Oh, this is for me, you'd be in a fantasy world. If you said, oh, it's nice, I get it, I understand that, I wish I had someone write me a letter like that, then that's a different understanding. But if you said, this letter is to me, you'd be wrong, that letter's to Susie. And to understand that letter, you'd have to know me, you'd have to know my world, some of my inner life, you'd have to know where I live, and you'd have to know something about Susie and her living conditions, and then we'd be close to maybe being able to understand the letter. So if I said to you, that moment, sweet Susie, was as tender as coffee on the deck at 7 o'clock on June 3rd. 
For those of you who have been to our house and know what the weather is like on June 3rd in southeast Oklahoma and know the kind of coffee that we drink, which isn't that stuff, and know what our porch is like, and know what our view is like, then, Clay, you get that a little bit, right? You don't know what we talked about yesterday evening or last night, but you get the imagery. We have to understand where Rome was, what Rome was about, as much as we possibly can. I want to tell you, I don't understand World War II as deep as I'd like to. I don't understand the Vietnam War as deep as I'd like to. How in the world am I supposed to unravel this? written in several languages by so many men. So as your pastor this morning, I want to tell you, I hope I'm doing a good job unraveling this. Anyone who says they've got it unraveled, don't trust them. Can I say that? Don't trust them. That was pretty strong. For those of you watching on the podcast, yep, I said it. A few words about Paul, because he's going to say some things here that, that are a little bit relevant to us. Paul had his conversion a couple years after Jesus was crucified, so he wasn't around. Somewhere around 31, 32 A.D. In Galatians chapter 1, it's very difficult to piece together Paul. We get, we've get this pretty well down, and we get this pretty well down, but there's an 8 to 11 year gap here where we don't hear much about Paul. We can only guess. Did you know that? There's a gap. We think, whoa, he immediately started his missionary journeys. He didn't. He, was, he had his conversion, according to Galatians 1, starting in verse 17. He went to Damascus, then he went to uh, Arabia. Somewhere in Arabia, doesn't say exactly. Then back to Damascus. Then he went down to Jerusalem. He saw Pete, Pete, or, uh, James and uh, yeah, Peter only saw those. He was with them for about 15 days. Then he went up into Syria, probably Tarsus. In fact, we're pretty sure Tarsus because that's where his home was, Paul of Tarsus, right? At that point, we don't hear from him. Now, Paul was probably in his early 20s, and if he was like any other Hellenistic Jew at that point, who, by the way, they spoke Greek. That's what Hellenistic is. The Hellenistic period is the Greek influence into the rest of the world. Why they call that Hellenism, I, I have no idea. But if something was done during the Hellenistic period, it came out of anything that had to do with Greek influence. Uh, math, philosophy, the Greek god system, uh, Aristotle, Socrates, and those others. Paul's parents were Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jews. Paul probably saw his parents as compromisers. Jewish people did not embrace Zeus very well. Jewish people really didn't connect with Nike very well. That's a Greek god. People, Jewish people didn't know who Sisyphus was, or Apollo, or the others. Paul's parents did. They were influenced heavily as Jewish people, influenced heavily by the Greek society. And they were, of course, in Tarsus, so they were part of the dysphoria, which means they had fled Jerusalem earlier. So here Paul becomes a Pharisee of Pharisees. Am I right? 
His parents embraced the Greek philosophy largely, but they also did the Jewish ceremonies, and they just lived quietly amongst society, doing Jewish things here and there, and doing the Greek things here and there. No big deal. It's where we live. Paul was stricter than his parents were. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day, trained in, and, he, and on and on it goes. He was one of the best, and he was zealous about what he did. Now, Paul has this uh, trip where he goes out and kills Christians. Read about this in Acts chapter 7, 8, and 9. It's fascinating. Suddenly, he has this conversion experience on the Damascus Road. And he becomes a Messianic Jew. That word wasn't around then, but he starts to follow Jesus. And then he goes to Damascus. Then he goes to, and they were all afraid of him, Arabia. Then he goes to Jerusalem, back to Damascus, and so on and so forth. Then he goes home to his parents. Hey, Mom and Dad, I'm a Jesus follower now. You mean that guy they killed in Jerusalem a few years back? Yeah, you're a Jesus follower. You see, Christians in the early centuries were viewed as a cult. Or Jews were viewed actually as atheists because the culture had many gods, especially the Roman culture. And then you throw in the Hellenistic people, so you've got these gods of this and that, and then you throw in the Greek system, and you've got this and that, and there were lots of gods, and the Jewish people said, no, there's one. So it was believed during those times that the Jews don't have a god because there's no statue. There's no image of them. They're atheists. They don't have a god. So Paul is not only growing up being viewed as godless, atheist, if you will, because he's Jewish and they have no statue for their God. Now he's a member of a Jesus cult. And a very dangerous cult as that. So he goes home at this young age, and had he been like most young men in those days, he was probably betrothed to be married. Now understand, at this point, I'm just imagining the text, but it sure makes sense that an influential fella like Paul, probably his parents had picked out a bride for him early on, and he goes home. So I'm imagining, and you'll understand that I'm stretching the text, and I'm ad-libbing a little bit for the text, but we have to understand what's happening here, because he uses the word brotherly love in our text today. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And I'm going to propose to you this morning, it's conjecture that Paul didn't know brotherly love. I think he went home. And he was there for eight or ten years. I think he went home and his parents said, you're not one of us. Understand 200, 2,020 years ago, ancient patriarchal Middle Eastern society. If you weren't one of them, they cash. We see what they do today, right? Imagine back then when there were no society, there was no YouTube. We couldn't film it. I think Paul was ostracized and cast out of his family. That's my hunch. 
I think Paul went home and got broken hearted. That's my hunch. And out of that broken heart, he struggles in Tarsus, does some missionary stuff while he's there, most scholars believe. But out of that broken heart and loneliness, he writes to the Romans and he says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. He wasn't just throwing that out as a platitude like like a grandma might throw out at dinner. Y'all love each other. Take care of each other. And she means it. Now let's have Paul stand in front of us, a man with no family, a man who suffered being rejected in his hometown. And he says, ladies and gentlemen, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. That comes from a different energy, doesn't it? It comes from a different place. He's saying, I don't get my approval from my parents. They cast me out. I don't get approval from my old friends, the Jewish zealots and Pharisees. They've cast me out. The Christians are afraid of me. I can only get my approval from God. And when he throws that in his, his other epistles, we got to know where that's coming from. He really meant it. He was alone. He was alone. So if he were to stand here before us, he'd say something like this. Hi, Atoka. I've lost my family. I've lost my brothers. Sweet girl I was going to be married to, her, her dad doesn't want me. And I spent eight years trying to work all this out. And I realized, I realized that the only place I can get love is from Jesus. I don't have brothers. I don't have a mom and dad. I'm out here on the road alone. But you guys, you have family. And if you don't have family, you've got each other. Wow, I don't have either. So I'm telling you, I miss my brothers, but we got to love each other like we were brothers. we got to be devoted to each other like we were brothers. We've got to honor one another above ourselves. Can we do that? And I think that's the heart of this text.